Welcome to Clear Thinking Out Loud, written and narrated by Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge. Hi, I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and welcome to three loneliness-busting CBT techniques for social anxiety. These are simple strategies to reduce shyness and improve social comfort. I wondered how many people there were in the world who suffered and continue to suffer because they could not break out from their own web of shyness and reserve, and in their blindness and folly built up a great distorted wall in front of them that hid the truth. And those are the words from the novel Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Now, Kay was a client of mine, and when she first came along, there was a palpable sadness about her, a, a sort of invisible cloak of hopelessness. Her fear had made her lonely. And she said, it's mainly when I meet new people, but I can even feel self-conscious and embarrassed with close friends. And she was clearly quite dejected by the whole situation. I asked Kay when she felt most anxious, and she said that she always tended towards anxiety, but it seemed to peak and reach an excruciating, intense focus when she was around other people. And she said, parties are the worst, meeting new people and knowing they're judging me, she said. Kay's certainty as to what others must think of her was dramatic. It's always, uh, it always is with chronically self-conscious people. They always tend to assume what other people must be thinking. And I wish I had that confidence in my own ability to read people's minds. But of course, it's fear, not perspicacity that leads people to conflate their imaginings with genuine perception. Fear turns us away from truth, from the reality that lies beyond our created scenarios. But first things first. So the antidote to fear is, of course, calm. That's why any practitioner worth their salt will know how to relax their clients. We may need to deal with the precognitive effects of pattern matching and trauma resolution, both facets of human consciousness that don't appear to be particularly amenable to cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, but used alongside interventions designed to help on the non-cognitive level or the precognitive level of human emotional response, CBT techniques can still have powerful effects for those suffering from social anxiety. So here are three cognitive behavioral therapy approaches I used with Kay to help her leave loneliness behind and really join the world, join her own life, so to speak. So technique number one, breathe out and count. Unless we're calm, our thoughts tend to be cognitive distortions of what we feel rather than reflections of what we think. For example, if I'm feeling enraged or terrified, then I'm in fight or flight mode, or more accurately, we might call this mode fight, flight, or freeze. You know, sometimes during times of such acute stress, we feel completely paralyzed. But the point here is that such heightened levels of stress drive us into all or nothing thought. And that's because fight or flight is an all or nothing condition. It molds your thought processes to fit your prevailing emotional state. Your emotions are extreme, so your thoughts are too. 
there's a sort of extremism in our thinking when we're very angry or very fearful or stressed. All or nothing, sometimes known as absolutist or black and white thinking, tracks alongside all emotional disorders. See reference one in the written article for this. The more stress we feel, the more all or nothing and extremist our language and our thoughts become. This absolutism in turn tends to make us feel more anxious, angry and depressed. When we calm down physiologically, the jagged distortions of absolutist thinking tend to smooth over alongside our lowering stress levels. It's hard to think everybody is going to hate me or I'm going to make an absolute fool of myself while feeling really calm. This is because feeling calm creates a predisposition to more nuanced and therefore less extremist thinking. So how do we help our clients feel calmer? Maybe the age-old advice to breathe deeply springs to mind. But take pause Okay, because for some anxious clients, encouraging them to simply breathe deeply may make them worse. Really, it's a case of breathing out. Okay, so the first thing that changes as we start to feel anxious is our breathing. And it's been found, for example, that breathing can start to alter up to 47 minutes before the onset of a panic attack. See reference, uh, the re- reference for that in the written article. But how does it alter? Now, it used to be thought that shallow breathing led to panic, but more recent findings indicate that deep breathing, that is breathing deeply on the inhalation, can also disrupt the carbon dioxide balance in the bloodstream. So really breathing in can actually make people feel a bit more anxious. This disruption can cause dizziness and tingling, a sense of unreality, and other physical alterations associated with panic attack. People who feel stressed, generally, often breathe in deeply, but exhale rapidly. And this kind of breathing corresponds to the way we need to breathe while exercising during a physically threatening situation, the fight or flight response, breathing in a lot. So what is the antidote to that kind of breathing? Well, fortunately, it's something you and I probably already do more when we're stressed quite naturally. So we sigh away stress. People sigh more, not just when they're tired, but also when they're stressed. When we breathe out, we trigger the relaxation response. So increased sighing may be a sign that someone is instinctively trying to calm themselves down. Okay, some people start to sigh a lot, and it might not be because they're tired. It might be because they're stressed. Their unconscious mind is trying to correct that. When we sigh, we extend the out-breath which is the opposite of the kind of breathing that occurs during the stress response, breathing out for longer than we breathe in. And we can utilize the beneficial effects of sighing to help our socially anxious clients. And we call this the 7-11 technique. If you want to have any hope of calming the stress response, we need to teach our clients the right form of breathing. So I taught Kay to breathe into the count, the quick count, quick inward count, not, not, not seconds, okay, very quickly, the inward count of, of seven to the outward count of 11. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then count out to 11. The exact numbers don't matter. You know, it could be uh, to the count of five and out to the count of seven. Okay, the point is the out breath is 
longer. The exhalation is longer than the inhalation and the body will inevitably relax when that happens. So rehearse this with your client and make sure that they're breathing slowly and regularly. Kay started using the 7-Eleven breathing technique before social events and also sometimes during them and reported feeling calmer and more in control of her emotionality. All this is great, but it's still too much self-focus. To really kick social anxiety out, something more is needed. So it's a good start of the 7-Eleven technique, but we want to get beyond that. So technique two, focus away from the inside of your own head. Mental health corresponds to our capacity to contextualize reality. So researchers found that socially anxious or shy children tend to recall less about their surroundings, including details about other people, um, after they've been exposed to a situation which makes them feel socially anxious. They, they're inwardly but not outwardly focused. And they tend to focus on their imaginative representations of what they feel is happening or might happen rather than what is actually happening and what's actually there in the environment. But it's not just children who do this. It's also been found that adults who suffer public speaking anxiety tend to over-focus on themselves at the expense of focusing their attention outwardly. And again, there's a reference for that in the written article. If the context we apply to everything is our own emotionally based representation rather than a mindful view of what is, then of course this self-absorption, used here descriptively, not judgmentally, will trip us up. On the positive side, consciously focusing on our environment rather than ourselves can help us in all kinds of ways, even retrospectively. So if we think about how we can soothe bad memories. It's been found that recalling the incidental details of painful memories, the context, not the feelings, can help ease the effects of those bad memories and make them less painful to recall. Uh, For example, if someone has um, overwhelmingly sad feelings about a memory, we might ask them to widen the context of that time by helping them describe what people were wearing, Okay, what the decor was like, for example, and other such incidental, unimportant details, unimportant to the extent that they weren't emotional. This can be a highly effective way of helping people contextualize the feelings around a memory and therefore process it and move on. So how can we use this to help our socially anxious clients relax more? We can ask them to notice what there is to notice. So Kay had an end-of-year work party coming up, and I asked her to practice her 7-Eleven breathing before and, if necessary, during the event, but also to notice and to remember. So I wanted her to notice and remember what colour the walls in the venue were. She'd not been there before. What artwork, if any, was on display. What colour people were wearing most commonly, and something about at least two other people that she hadn't noticed before. Okay, so she completed this task successfully and reported that along with the 7-Eleven technique, it had really helped her. And in fact, she said not only could she recall details uh, she wouldn't have usually noticed, but she had felt much calmer and even began to enjoy herself because the focus was outward, which is where it needed to be. So technique three, catch and challenge cognitive distortions. Heightened feelings produce simplified and extremist thoughts that can be so far from reality 
or such a distortion as to be considered um, cognitive distortions. So we can discuss how this happens with our clients and point out the more obvious ones, such as all or nothing extremist or absolute uh, thought or absolutist thinking. So, you know, uh, thoughts such as everyone is better than me, they're so perfect, or I'm completely weird. Okay. If your clients report using all or nothing thinking, then task them with spotting times when they do, when they do this sort of thinking, and get them to first challenge those thoughts and secondly replace them with more moderate ideas or simply relax with uncertainty enough to wait for actual evidence before leaping to conclusions. Okay. Overgeneralization is another thinking distortion. I felt anxious last time I was out with people. I'm always going to feel anxious with people. So you take one instance and you spread it to everything. I was rejected by that person. No one will ever want to know me. Okay, so overgeneralizing the negative is one of the more common cognitive distortions. And we often see this in depressed clients, of course. Ask your client to first spot when they overgeneralize and second, look for counter evidence. For example, if they can catch themselves thinking, I'm always so afraid of people they can think of a time they haven't been so afraid or specific people that they found less scary. So they're breaking up the all or nothingness of the thinking. The propaganda, so to speak, of the emotional state only likes to feed us examples that fit the state itself. Counter evidence tends to get automatically filtered out. So we need to stop our clients doing that. But when we look for counter evidence, we gain power and perspective. Next, we have catastrophization. This is going to be a complete disaster. I'm going to make such a fool of myself. Everyone's going to hate me. No one is ever going to like me. I'm going to die alone. Okay. All these are examples of catastrophizing. When we assume the very worst, we conjure up all sorts of scary scenarios in our minds. We come to believe that the very worst we can possibly imagine will happen. Okay. It's not a question of whether but when. And we feel that everything is completely hopeless. We're shackled by an unwavering belief that negative aspects of reality are fixed, but positives are fragile and too good to last. This is a common negative bias. Remember, all cognitive distortions ride on the back of fear and anxiety and stress, as well as habit to some degree. One way you can help your socially anxious clients challenge these distortions is through Socratic questioning, which simply asks them to expand the context of their cognitive distortions. For example, we might ask, is it possible for someone, do you think, to believe they're not liked as much as they are liked in reality? Okay, so this doesn't tell your client how to think, but rather enables them to loosen up their own thought processes and examine an idea calmly. And we're talking about other people so they can be a little bit more objective. This brings us on to the final thinking distortion that I want to uh, address, which is mind reading. So you hear people say things like, they must hate me. They must think that I'm a total loser. You know, she, she must be thinking this about me and so forth. Assuming we know what others must be thinking is tantamount to believing that we can read minds. When we're anxious, we can be quite 
uncharitable in assuming others are cruel in their thoughts about us. So I spoke to Kay about research that showed that when people first meet us, they like us more than we imagine they do for most of us, not for the narcissists out there, but for most of us, we um, underestimate how people, how much people like us. The researchers call this the liking gap. And it seems we consistently underestimate how much our new conversational partners like us. And I think we can all be prone to this type of cognitive distortion to some extent. I've noticed that people feel better simply by being aware that they actually do see reality through a distorted lens. Okay, and that they can to some extent correct that. Paradoxically, we uh, really, what we really want is for our clients to be less sure of themselves when it comes to catastrophic and simplistic interpretations of reality. You know, less surety is needed uh, in, in those times. And of course, for some clients, these self-management techniques aren't enough. They may need a little more help. So going back to basics, sometimes we might need to teach shy and socially anxious clients social skills. You know, it's been found, not surprisingly, that shyness correlates with low um, social skills. And there's a reference for, for that as well in the written article. Certainly, this isn't the case for everyone, but consider whether it might be for your client. Do they have good social skills? For some clients, a crash course in how to put others at their ease, how to engage with people, even how to make small talk, may be a big part of easing their social anxiety. Some people have never really picked up those for what the rest of us find to be instinctive skills. They've never really learned them. So we tend to relax more with what we're good at. Okay. And if we think about connected in the deep, the CBT techniques, among others, that um, I used with Kay, helped her relax the emotional parts of her mind so that other more nuanced and context-widening parts could finally have some input in her life. Kay began to breathe more easily naturally, and because of that, she began to think more easily as well. She started to notice what other people had to say and forget herself long enough to enjoy herself. And when Kay started to catch the old habitual thinking distortions, trying it on with her, she even started to find there, in her words, crass tricks, almost laughable. She was on the outside of them, could see them for what they were. And she wrote me a card to tell me that life was much better for her. She no longer feared people or what she might be or seem to be to them. And she also wrote something else, a quote from American psychologist William James, because she was a very thoughtful client. And she, and, and the quote was this, we are like islands in the sea, separate on the surface, but connected in the deep. So I hope you found that useful. I'm Mark Tyrrell of Uncommon Knowledge, and if you'd like to subscribe to my email newsletter, you can find it over at unk.com slash blog. That's unk.com slash blog. Mm -hmm.